This is Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. David Drucker is the senior political correspondent for The Washington Examiner, a conservative magazine based in Washington, D.C. The 2024 presidential election is still a ways away, and a lot could happen between now and then. But still, it's worth asking questions about who will run for president in 2024. On the Republican side, in addition to the question of whether Trump actually wants to run again, people like Mike Pence, Marco Rubio, and Mike Pompeo all haven't ruled it out and seem to be keeping their powder dry for potential presidential runs in the future. All this comes in a moment when the philosophy and politics of Republican Party coalitions are changing. Since the days of Ronald Reagan, parts of the party have changed their views on trade, government spending, and even democracy itself in some cases. David is an expert on all of this. We talked to him about it. Like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a conversation that was taped with audience questions. For information about how to join us or past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Friday. This episode came from our archives. It was recorded early in 2022. Our co-founder, Justin Higgins, led the interview. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. Before we get into the candidates, I'm wondering if you could kind of outline in your words the most influential coalitions that make up the voting of the GOP primary. You know, the Republican Party is a party that is somewhat in flux but still somewhat the traditional conservative party it's been over the past 40 years. You can be heterodox. You can, you can break the mold a little bit, but you still have to be a strong opponent of abortion rights or pro-life. You have to be a strong supporter of the second amendment and be a strong opponent of gun control or gun safety legislation, depending on your point of view, you don't necessarily have to be for small government, but less government telling you what to do, if that makes any sense. In other words, if you want to spend millions in government money, taxpayer dollars on a project or a program that Republican voters think is useful, they are for that. If you want to use that money to tell them what to do in some way that they don't like, that's where they take offense. It's more the idea of big brother versus big government. The Republican Party is now a party where you cannot necessarily be a free trader in the classical sense. You can say that you are for fair trade, but you cannot say that you are necessarily for free trade. So you're still going to have your pool of social conservatives. You're going to have now, and this is sort of new, your pool of conservative populists. They've always been a part of the party, but they are now more prevalent and more influential within the coalition. And then somewhere in there, you still have your mainstream suburban Republicans. And then somewhere in there are the suburban Republicans who, as we've seen, are willing to vote for Democrats. It happened in 2018 and 2020. I don't want to belabor this too long, but I would think of it as social conservatives, conservative populists, and 
suburban swing voters and soft Republicans who live in the suburbs. And they're sort of competing for the Republican space with the conservative populace much more prevalent now that we are in the Trump era and out of the Reagan era. One point in the book that you make, and it's almost a prerequisite, I think you do lay it out that way, and I totally agree with you, so I do want to start with that, is that any viable candidate that is to compete and ultimately win a presidential primary in 2024 for the GOP needs to be this pugilistic, almost culture warrior that resonates with both those social conservatives and these conservative populists. But they also need to be authentic in the way they do it. And you kind of frame it through the lens of how Trump was able to accomplish that. So I guess my question to you is, is this looking at the last election and trying to project things forward? Or do you genuinely believe that now this is one of the prerequisites for the GOP? So I do think this is one of the prerequisites for the Republican Party going forward. And what I tried to do within Trump's shadow is take a look at the Trump era and Donald Trump and see what all of that stuff meant for what's next. And you picked up on the biggest thing that I learned when I was talking to Republican strategists about what it was going to take to get ahead in the next primary. They said, of course, you have to be right on the issues. You have to be right on trade, gun rights or whatever. But ultimately, most candidates will be right on those issues. And so what's really going to distinguish you, what's almost as important as any of these issues, and in some ways more important, is whether or not voters think you're a fighter. One of the things Trump was able to accomplish is that voters thought he would fight anybody for any reason at any time, no holds barred. That really appealed to them. And for most of my lifetime, you had to be some level of statesman, some level of restraint. You had to show some level of restraint. Go find a vice presidential nominee to be your attack dog. Go find a surrogate of some sort to be your attack dog because you had to be presidential. And that really doesn't cut it anymore. You still have to make people believe that you are presidential in terms of having the gravitas and the strength and and all the things that go along with people seeing a president when they look at you and feeling like you're a strong leader, but they want to see fight. And that is one of the biggest things. And I see this on the left as well with Democrats as well, but Republicans want somebody that they believe is going to fight. No holds barred, no matter what. I honestly believe the personality traits that you just outlined were what voters ultimately propelled the Tea Party wave in 2010. You had members like Tim Hulskamp, Mick Mulvaney, uh, Jim Jordan, Justin Amash, people that were fighting no matter what, and they were able to capitalize on the social conservatives because of their conservative values. And also, they were able to get this uh, nascent, at the time, populist movement. But I do want to ask you about one of the candidates, potential candidates, he even is in a fight with Trump right now, Ron DeSantis, who, in my opinion, embodies that type of personality better than anybody. I was working for the governor of Puerto Rico, went in, met with his staff, and his staff embodied what he was like. We asked for money for health care for an ailing island, and they basically told us to get screwed. They weren't going to spend another dime. So it was a very rigid type of approach. Why did you not do a chapter on Ron DeSantis? And to really put a pin on that, 
what are his weaknesses that ultimately led you to leave him out of the book? Well, in this case, leaving the, the Florida governor out of the book was a quirk, one, of timing, and two, of a certain criteria that I had for what the book was about, in part. The book was about, in part, Republicans that had been preparing to run for president since the moment Trump took office, that there was the shadow campaign for the 2024 nomination going on from almost the moment he put his hand on the Bible and took the oath of office. And DeSantis was not one of those people. DeSantis won his first race for governor in 2018. He was obviously focused on that. And as governor, he has been focused on winning re-election in 2022. And so he never engaged in the kind of positioning and jockeying and preparing to run for president that was a big underpinning of in Trump's shadow, a battle for 2024 and the future of the GOP. Now, if I were to begin to write the book today, I would find a way to include Ron DeSantis in the book one way or the other in a greater fashion because he has become such a major figure within the party nationally. He is very adept at being a conservative culture warrior, and he has found a way to do it as a governor versus as a member of Congress where it, where it is much easier to do. Ron DeSantis does not have a team around him that has been with him for a long period of time. He has had a lot of trouble keeping very talented staff to stick with him and remain with him because he's a very prickly character who micromanages and is constantly unhappy with one thing or another, and staff is always scapegoated. I mean, he's the only Republican I know in Florida that can't get along with Susie Wiles, who is one of the most capable Republican operatives in the country, and particularly so in Florida. I mean, Donald Trump is notoriously difficult to work for, and he's found a way to get along with Susie Wiles, and she's a major figure in his political operation because of that. And so I think for Ron DeSantis, one of the things he has to do and we will see if he does that with this re-election campaign, is build and keep a team and instill a sense of loyalty and mission in them. Only somebody like Donald Trump with 100% name ID who's famous and his feature is almost that he's the anti-candidate can get away with what he got away with and get by with having minimal and not always capable staff. Something of note happened the past two nights on Fox. It began when Senator Ted Cruz described the events of January 6th from the site of the infamous day. We are approaching a solemn anniversary this week, uh, and it is an anniversary of a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol. Of all the things that January 6th was, it was definitely not a violent terrorist attack. It wasn't an insurrection. Was it a riot? Sure. It was not a violent terrorist attack. Sorry. So why are you telling us that it was, Ted Cruz? For me to be saying that the people standing up and protesting to follow the law were somehow terrorists. I was talking about people who commit violence against cops. And you and I both agree, if you commit violence against cops, you should go to jail. And if you look at all the assaults we've seen across the country, I've called that terrorism over and over again. That being said, Tucker, I agree with you. It was a mistake to say that yesterday. I do want to hit back on that Tea Party 
kind of symbolism that we got into with the personality and get into Ted Cruz. Back in 2013, people probably remember a government shutdown over Obamacare. It was led by Ted Cruz. He was a fighter. But Ted Cruz has gone from this authentic, genuine fighter who's the voice of the base to recently going to Mexico when his state was in the biggest crisis that it's faced in a long while, the ice storm. And that is the move of an elitist's elite. Also, he miscalculated the January 6th stuff, and he had to go on Tucker Carlson's show and basically grovel. It was really, really pathetic. So I guess, can we look at Ted Cruz, and does he still have this credibility as an authentic fighter, despite really these self-inflicted wounds? Well, look, Senator Cruz understood one thing very well about the Republican base, and you just sort of relayed the history of that. He knew what they wanted. They wanted a fighter. They didn't want somebody to deliver incremental change or realistic change or to give it the old college try. They wanted somebody to jump in the hole and blow everything up. He was outfought by Trump. Trump comes along and he's an even bigger fighter because even Ted Cruz believes that government institution and politics require a certain amount of tender, loving care. And there are certain lines you just don't cross. And he couldn't outdo Trump. Underneath all of that, there have always been questions about his authenticity. Did he really believe what he said, or did he just understand what people wanted to hear? I don't think his Texas trip during that ice storm is a problem at all. I spent a lot of time in Texas because I have, uh, my wife's family is from there. And Republican voters that I talked to there thought the media was being unfair by focusing on that mistake. And it was a mistake. I mean, when you're a United States senator, uh, let alone some other public official, and your state is in crisis, you don't leave. But that's not a problem. The groveling on the Tucker Carlson show undermines the idea that you're a fighter. And it may seem like paradoxical, right? Because Tucker Carlson's a major media figure. He's very influential. He says Ted Cruz shouldn't have called the January 6th insurrection a terrorist attack. Then you better disavow it right away. And then Tucker Carlson will leave you alone. But in this era of being a fighter, the worst thing you can do is change your opinion because you're taking criticism, even from somebody influential. What is the lesson of Trump? I mean, no matter what that guy said, he never backed down. Sometimes it cost him, but it always told Republican voters that he wasn't full of shit. And it always told Republican voters that he would stand up to anybody. Now we could talk about the, the you know the, the different. We could talk about different things about Donald Trump and the times he actually did pivot or back down a little bit, or ways in which he navigated, you know, various opinions he had and positions he took. But ultimately, you know, he'd go on a Sunday show and he'd say something about foreign policy, and somebody'd say, "Well, you know, General So and So, some really respected general who actually knows something." believes X. And he'd say, well, I know more than the generals. And we, you know, people like us would sit around and go, oh my God, he said, he, you know, he knows more than the Joint Chiefs of Staff and he's he's never even worn the uniform. But the point is, he, he just, he never cowered. And so Republican voters would almost forgive the indiscretion and say, well, man, that guy, he's just not afraid of anything. And in fact, because so many Republican voters, and not just Republicans, but because we're talking about them, we're questioning their faith in American institutions 
it didn't necessarily hurt that Trump would badmouth the generals because people were thinking about Iraq and this and that. They said, well, maybe the generals don't know that much. So which gets us back to Ted Cruz. When I talked to Ted Cruz after January 6th or around January 6th, he was busy calling the January 6th ransacking of the United States Capitol a terrorist attack. He never called the ransack which I terrorists. Which I agree. I, I think um, they were terrorists, and it was a terrorist attack, so I just wanted right. to jump in And there. he said it on his podcast, and he said it for months and months and months. And one day, Tucker Carlson finally gets wind of it, and then he says, oh, I misspoke, as though he just most misspoke once and misspoke the other day. Well, he's been misspeaking forever, and Tucker Carlson is right about this. Ted Cruz is very deliberate about his use of words. He's a brilliant attorney. He really is a brilliant attorney, a very good litigator. The guy knows what he's saying, and he knows why he's saying it. And Ted Cruz actually does believe some things, and he knows what he believes and why he believes it, and he knows exactly why he chooses to use certain words and when and all of that. He should have gone on Tucker Carlson and said, Tucker, I love you, man. We just disagree. And he should have mixed it up with Tucker Carlson and said, I understand a lot of your viewers. You got more than anybody else. They're going to disagree. They might. That's fine. Everybody knows where to find me. Give me a call. I'm sorry, it was a terrorist attack. This is what I've been saying for years. And and voters would say that, you know, I don't know if I agree with him, but man, he's mixing Tucker and Tucker. I mean, you know, you know, you don't want to get into it with Tucker, but he, he did the exact opposite of what a fighter does to get ahead in Republican politics within the context of what voters are looking for and what signals they are looking for. You can change your position independently. You can come to new conclusions independently. But the minute you back down under pressure, and he did it in such a public way, that probably did more to put an extra burden on his desire to run for president again and win than anything he's ever done. I'm going to ask you, Give me your best case why Mike Pence could win a future GOP primary in 2024. Best case. He is connected and well thought of in all of the key micro factions within the Republican coalition. Conservative populists are a little wary of him, but he hasn't done anything to horribly offend them. And he did support Trump's agenda. He's a prolific fundraiser. He is likable and engaging. He's got a team of sharks around him that know what they're doing. And he can say to voters that I'm willing to fight anybody, including the time I had to stand up to my former boss, Donald Trump, and certify the election. Wish it didn't come down to that. But that just tells you that I've got the fortitude to be president. And that nobody will intimidate me, not even at the threat of my political career. That's your best case. I like it. That is a good case. And I know you wrote the book about it from your sources. Do you think he's seriously considering mounting a run? I know he's been traveling around. And if so, will he be able to attract that top talent that can also tap into the populist conservatives, the social conservatives, even after January 6th and his very, I want to exalt him, his very patriotic role that he played? I think Mike Pence will be able to get all of the staff that he needs. And I can tell you from my reporting that Mike Pence has not ruled out running for president, even if Donald Trump runs. Whether he can win, obviously, is a different story. 
But Mike Pence is not the only Republican who might run anyway. And if you're a Republican in your 60s and you don't plan on being Joe Biden in your 80s running for president or late 70s, then in your 60s is kind of when you're going to run, even if Donald Trump decides to throw a wrench in the gears and run again and make your life very difficult. That would be interesting. Just two candidates duking it out and, and see how the, the never Trumpers, which you touch on in your book, there's different factions of never Trumpers, but but how they would react to it. So I have two more questions, Pompeo and Rubio. Very simply put, can Mike Pompeo resonate with people at scale in a way that they believe he's not only likable, but an actual authentic fighter, despite being so scripted, he cuts the interviews off right when he's supposed to cut them off. Right. So there are two two Mike Pompeos. First of all, before I wrote, reported and wrote in Trump's shadow, that was my opinion of Mike Pompeo. That is the Pompeo that everybody in America saw while he was CIA director and secretary of state. Dour, one note, angry, dismissive, curt. I mean, I could go on and on and on. As I started researching him and talking to people who knew him and watching video of him giving speeches and then being in the room with him giving some speeches and talks and watching him interact with people like voters and activists, not politicians and government officials and political professionals. What I saw was somebody who has a lot of range, who is a good retail politician, who knows how to connect with a voter, who knows, and this is something he does not do in Washington at all. And I actually joked with him about this the first time I interviewed him. Uh, I interviewed him for the first time toward the end of his tenure as Secretary of State. And I said to him, I've been trying to find things out about your life, and it's very difficult to find. And he just kind of smirked at me like, yeah, that's the way I like it. But if you listen to him give a speech, he will give away pieces of himself. He'll talk about you know, his upbringing in California or his grandparents in Kansas and tell different stories about them and him and why it's a relevant story. And people are, I don't want to say mesmerized, but they are engaged and interested. And he is interesting. And you see him one-on-one with a person, with a voter, and he's not one note and dismissive and dour. And he's got personality and his eyes light up. And so I'm saying all of this because I study this to see you know, what kind of talent somebody has as a politician. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And what I discovered is he is a good retail politician and not at all what we grew used to through his years as a member of the House of Representatives and his time in the Trump administration. You're running for re-election. Um, do you rule out the possibility or do you believe that, th- that you leave open the possibility of running for president in 2024? Well, the way I tell people about that is I already ran one. So clearly at some point I was interested in being president. So it'd be silly for me to say no, never, ever. But frankly, one of the things I've learned, and you've known me a long time, I'm you know, Speaker of the House, state legislator doing this is, and I think one of the things I've learned in time is you kind of kind of focus on what's before you and not always, you know, thinking about what's down the road in a couple of years. I have a job. I have things I want to accomplish here. So I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on reelection. And honestly, I'm not trying to be evasive. I just don't know what the country is going to be like, what the party is going to want, what the 
the what the country is going to need or even where my own life is going to be like in two three four years i mean i weigh all these things all the time i i have a you know i'm gone three and a half four days a week i have a young family that continues to grow up every single day every day i'm not there the day i can't get back that's a consideration for me and many of the decisions that i make so i just I, i'm not in a position to tell you where i'm going to be three years from now I want to get into Marco Rubio, and he's just wilted under national pressure, David, most visibly in his State of the Union with the water, his debate frees up with Chris Christie, where he was like a robot repeating the same lines over and over again. But most substantively, he came out against his own Gang of Eight immigration bill. So simply put, does Marco Rubio actually have the medal to run and win a presidential primary? I don't know, but I ended up writing about him, and here's another case where I didn't expect to, because he has done something that's just different than a lot of other Republicans who went through that experience or that are considering running that didn't go through the 2016 campaign. And that is he decided to put meat on the bones of Trumpism from a policy perspective. You know, he's from Miami, which is the Cuban community is very conservative politically, but it's culturally still a very liberal city and a liberal environment, culturally liberal. And if you're an immigrant, especially from Cuba, but for many places around the world, you come to the United States and the opportunities compared to where you came from are amazing. And you have such admiration and love for the country and you think anything is possible. And that is the attitude that Marco Rubio took with him into his presidential campaign. It's one of the reasons why the theme of his campaign was a new American century because, I mean, he comes to the United States, or his parents do, and in the 20th century, it's this amazing place, uh, especially compared to where he would have grown up. And he's like, more of the same, bring it on. And he said that he started traveling the country and going to communities and throughout the Midwest and elsewhere where he met a lot of Republican voters who didn't think the 20th century was all that great. Not necessarily, you know, for America and its standing in the world, but factories left town, factories moved overseas, the jobs weren't plentiful, the community anguishing, and they were looking for somebody to help fix things. They didn't want more of what they had been through over the past 40 years, 50 years, 20 years. And on top of that, he loses, and Donald Trump doesn't just beat him in the primary, he gets elected president. So Marco Rubio, you know, says to himself, well, I mean, there's just big divide. I mean, what we keep offering our voters is not what they want. And this other guy, he figured it out. And Rubio, being the policy guy that he is, you know, decided he was going to go and develop this whole menu of policy items that was going to speak to what people were asking for. And the question is, is that what they were really asking for? Or did they just like Donald Trump because he was a culture warrior? Marco Rubio can do a little of that, but ultimately, he's a solutions guy. He's a policy guy. If you look at how he's handled his legislative career and and his congressional career, he wants white papers. He's a really good communicator and knows not to get bogged down in reading white papers, but he wants white papers. And so he's gone about putting together this whole menu of policy items on industrial policy and investing in local communities, things that are not Reagan era, it's not Reagan era Republicanism. It's really sort of Trump populism if Trump would have translated 
his rhetoric into an actual policy agenda beyond what he adopted. And if he went beyond trade on the policy spectrum. And the question again is, do Republican primary voters want that? Or do they just want somebody to provide them the catharsis by fighting all of their enemies and telling them that there's nothing wrong with them? So if Marco Rubio runs for president again, we will find out if they want what he's selling. When I interviewed him for In Trump Shadow, he told me that he wants to he hasn't lost the urge to be president or run again, but he does not want to run again if he concludes that they're not interested in what he's selling. And just look, one comment on his wilting under pressure. I mean, I covered almost every debate in person in the 2016 campaign. And, and look, Marco Rubio made a lot of mistakes. His campaign made a lot of mistakes. He functioned almost perfectly in every single debate but one. The one debate he screwed up and sank him. Now, it sank him because there were so many underlying doubts about him, his age, what he had accomplished. And then you have Trump, who was Trump. The fact that he wasn't a strong enough candidate, that voters did not have enough faith in him to forgive him his one transgression, was something that ultimately was his fault. He did not create enough of a persona. He did not give voters enough reason to believe and that it was one mistaken out. But I don't think it's fair to say he wilted. I just think he got steamrolled by a bigger and better candidate in that race. And sometimes that's what happens. Hardy, over to you. Hey, thanks a lot, Justin. I just have a question. What do you think is the best strategy or counter strategy for a Democratic presidential candidate to use to campaign and win against these pugilistic kind of candidates we're seeing on the Republican side? Thank you. Well, look, I don't like to tell voters what they want, but you know, in my reporting, what I've detected from Democratic voters is they want the same thing that Republican voters want in this regard, right? Meaning they're Americans. They want politicians that are going to fight for them and fight aggressively. All I would say about Democrats being that they control the White House, the House, and the Senate right now is they won a close election if you look at the states that mattered in the Electoral College even though they won a very healthy, popular vote. But we are, you know, it's a federal system decided by the Electoral College, and this race could have gone either way. On top of it, they won the Senate, but it's a 50-seat majority, and they actually lost a dozen House seats. They went and they ended up with a five-seat majority. It's not even a governing majority. So I think if you're a Democrat, you do the same thing that anybody else does. You pay attention to the issues voters care about and speak to them. You don't try and tell them what is most important. I think one of the mistakes Democrats are making right now is not that they're fighting for issues that they care about. There's nothing wrong with that. But from a political standpoint right now, they're focused on issues that voters aren't interested in, even if they were to rank them as problems. You know, I think if you talk to a Democrat, if you talk to an independent voter or a swing voter about January 6th, they say, that's horrible. Should never have that again. Should there be an investigation? Totally, there should be an investigation. What's your biggest problem right now? Inflation. I mean, if President Biden, the only thing I'll say about his news conference today that's relevant to this discussion is he should have come out and talked about nothing but inflation and had a whole new policy agenda for inflation. That's it. That's all he should have done. That and COVID. And nothing. And then, you know, whatever the questions are, it's different. And and he didn't do that. 
And right now that's what voters want. So Democrats can win elections the same way Republicans can win elections. You need a compelling candidate with a compelling message, knows what they believe, and who focuses what they believe on the things that voters want to hear most about. And that's how you win. So we're going to go to Duke. And then our last question of the night will be to John Gunnison. Duke, over to you. Hi, David. Thanks for uh, being here. So I had a question because you brought up an interesting point about everyone going down to Mar-a-Lago and paying respects to President Trump and, you know, people he possibly holding out and having like wielding this power. But does he run the risk of losing a lot of that power in 2022 if the Republicans are successful at flipping a lot of seats? Is it a possibility that the GOP does well enough in 2022 that it kind of renders President Trump not as large of a factor as he would like to be in 2024? So I don't think so, simply because he'll declare victory and Republicans, enough Republicans that support him in Washington, meaning, you know, members of Congress will all credit him and all the work he did and make it, you know, at the very least, just so that he leaves them alone, which he won't, but that's what they always do. I just don't know what's going to happen over the course of this year is Trump's going to go hold a bunch of rallies and then Republicans are going to win back the House and the Senate, most likely, uh, whether it has anything to do with him or not. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it has absolutely nothing to do with him. He'll still take credit. Republican voters will think it's about him. And at the very least, it'll be like, see, Trump is Trump, and he January 6th, and this and that, and Republicans won the House. So Trump's an unalloyed good. I'll draw a parallel to answer your question about how I'm thinking about this. So we talked briefly about the Obamacare shutdown spearheaded by Ted Cruz, and also Mike Lee. People forget that, <laughs> Senator from Utah. It was really a Cruz-Lee project, but Cruz was more up front on it. So anyway, the Obamacare shutdown is a total political disaster. I remember uh, Wall Street Journal, NBC polling had the party's brand down like 25%. It, it was like the lowest it had ever been, ever, ever. And finally, they have to capitulate because Democrats were like, screw you. I'm not, I, I like, I gave up 63 House seats and, you know, 10 Senate seats or whatever, seven Senate seats for Obamacare. And I, and I believe in it. And Obama's like, I'm president. <laughs> I'm not capitulating. So Republicans capitulate. And then, because that's over, what's next? Well, the rollout of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and it was a total unmitigated disaster. And then, you know, you had the rise of, of the Islamic State, and Obama says that they don't matter, and it's nothing, and it turns out it was something. And so Republicans, you know, win nine Senate seats, win a few more House seats, and everybody says, see, because of the Obamacare shutdown, we won back Congress. We grew our House majority and finally won the Senate. And I'm like, no, it's because you let it go soon enough and they could focus on all the mistakes they thought Obama was making instead of how you were screwing everything up. And so my point is, politics is kind of like a conspiracy theory. Anything that happens proves the conspiracy. No matter what happens in politics, it's because of what I did, because that's how I want to look at the world. And you can never prove it different because it's just what people think. So I don't think that Republicans doing very well will make 
anybody that matters think that Trump wasn't a factor. We will go to John Gunnison for the last question, then over to the author and columnist for his last thoughts. John. Thank you very much, David. When you were describing the characteristics that you said that a successful Republican candidate would have to have, one of the things that you mentioned was a Trumpian policy on trade. And I sometimes chuckle when trade is mentioned in this context because it's so often used as a post hoc explanation for why Trump won, even though it's so seldom discussed in ordinary conversations. And you could even make an argument that Trump's trade policy actually hurt him politically because of the impact that it had on key industries in key constituencies. When you talk to voters, do you hear them talking about trade or is it indeed much further down the list of concerns than some of the culture war topics? What do you hear when you speak to voters? Right. So it's a good question. And I think that it depends on how you understand the issue. When I'm talking to voters, it depends on where I am or where they are. Like, am I in Iowa or New Hampshire or Michigan or or Arizona or California? So when am I talking to them and where am I talking to them? I think that trade, and I asked Trump about this when I interviewed him for Interim Shadow, and I spent a couple hours with him in Mar-a-Lago. And I, you know, I asked him, you know, what did he think is important to his success? Because I wanted to understand it from his perspective and just understand the period. He mentioned trade and he thought it mattered a lot. And I think in the context of the 2016 campaign, it mattered because it was an unorthodox position to take in the Reagan era. Republicans were the party of free trade. It was the Democrats that wanted to use the government to make life tougher on businesses. And we know the Republican messaging vis-a-vis when you make life tougher on businesses. And Trump, I think, not only did he speak to voters in the Midwest where Republicans had been trying and failing to get over the hump, so it mattered from that perspective, but it also sent a signal that he was willing to break with the past and stand up to Republican orthodoxy if that's what it took. But it also was a way for him to tell all of these blue-collar voters in the Midwest that he was going to deliver jobs because it wasn't just trade, but it was trade vis-a-vis China. So when I'm talking to voters, they're going to say, I want a job, you know, I want economic opportunity or whatever. Maybe right now it's inflation and COVID. But if you're in a Republican primary and you're campaigning in rural Iowa or New Hampshire or maybe not South Carolina, because trade is a different thing there because of all of the foreign companies that have come in there, but in other areas around the country, one of the ways you speak to these blue collar voters who are former Democrats that are now fully converted into voting for Republicans, not just on cultural issues in the general election, One of the ways you speak to their concerns about jobs is by saying in some fashion that you're not just a pure free trader. That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to David Drucker and the Washington Examiner, to our audience for their questions, and most of all, to you for being here. Like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a longer conversation that was taped with audience questions. 
for information about how to join us or past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode coming this Friday. This has been Politics and Media 101. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, we hope to hear from you soon.